December 1858, the U.S. Indian agent for the Territory of New Mexico made his first foray into Arizona. He had been dealing with the various tribes in what we call New Mexico today for about six years, but now it was time to visit the various Apache tribes that called Southern Arizona home and see what could be worked out to preserve peace in that area. En route, he visited an Apache band at the Santa Rita de Cobre mines in New Mexico, where he dispensed gifts and found them settled and well-disposed to Americans. When he got to the Chiricahua Mountains in southeastern Arizona, he started trading with the nearly 600 Apache he found there, including three of their leaders. As part of his normal process, the agent gave away some heads of cattle, roughly 32 bushels of corn, more than 200 blankets, 100 yards of manta, or cotton cloth, and 200 copper kettles. The agent was satisfied with the behavior of these Apache, saying, quote, This band of Apaches have committed no depredations upon the route to California for near two years. End quote. He then went on his way, not suspecting that in less than a year, the goodwill he had just so recently established would erode, and that in just over two years, this particular group would explode into violent contention with the U.S. Army. Neither did he realize that one of the leaders that he had just treated with would one day become one of the most recognizable Apaches to ever cross paths with the Americans. Cochise. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. Episode 34, The Bascom Affair, Part 1, Cochise and Mangas Coloradas. Alright, so some apologies up front. Last week, I was more than eager and ready to promote that this week we were going to dive fully into the Bascom Affair, a pivotal event that would lead to the full-on outbreak of war with the Apaches. But, before we could really get into the meat of that incident, I felt we had to set up both our main players and the situation. And so I started writing. And writing. And writing and quickly realized that I wouldn't get anywhere near the actual incident before the 30-minute mark at the rate I was going. As with most of my episode planning, I had originally envisioned covering this important event in a single episode. But after reading my sources, I decided that I needed to split it up across two episodes. That's okay, and happens more than you would think. However, then I started writing and now realized that I can't set up everything and cover it in less than three episodes. Because to fully understand everything that's about to go down, we need to again talk about our old friends, the Apache, and specifically single out two important leaders of the various Chiricahua Apache bands, including the hot-headed Cochise and his father-in-law, Mangas Coloradas. These are major players who will dominate the stage, and who I have pretty much inexcusably ignored until now. That means it won't be until next week that we'll introduce Johnny Ward, the unfortunate rancher who will get into the middle of all this, 
and U.S. Army Brevet Second Lieutenant George Bascom. Who is the poor wrong soul history decided to put in the wrong place at the exact wrong time? Next week, we'll also get to that seemingly innocuous event that would set the spark to the powder keg. Then the following week, we'll get into the escalating series of blunders that turned that seemingly innocuous event into the Bascom Affair. But before we even get into that, I need to start today with some minor corrections. Thankfully, as with the last time I did a correction, it's not a factual error, but one of pronunciation. You might remember that in our previous episode, I introduced you to the four bands that made up the Chiricahua Apache. At the time, I gave you fair warning that I had no idea if I was pronouncing them correctly. When I said that, it had completely skipped my mind that I did have one source that was kind enough to actually write down the correct pronunciations. In my defense, I was a victim of my own preparation. I strive to have as many sources as possible for when I'm discussing things. For most topics, that averages out to be about four. For what we are diving into today, I literally have seven books sitting in front of me. So I hope you'll forgive me for forgetting about the pronunciation guide that was tucked away in one of the first books I read for these episodes. Anyway, the four bands of the Chiricahua Apache are the Chiheni, or red paint people, the Nedni, those called Haneros by the Mexicans, the Bidonkohi, which was the smallest of the bands, and finally the Chokonan, or Ridge of the Mountain people, and also the only band where I think I came pretty close to the correct pronunciation last week. Now that we have those and their correct pronunciation straight, we can talk about the leaders of these bands and how they will feature prominently into our narrative. First up is someone I've actually mentioned in passing several times now without giving him anything approaching due diligence. The physically impressive leader, Mangas Coloradas. Now, much like the Apache themselves, I just sort of slipped Mangas Coloradas into the narrative with the promise that one day we would go back and talk about him. He first appeared in episode 17, as possibly part of the furious Apache attacks on the Mexican city of Hanos, and certainly part of the larger raiding happening across Chihuahua back in 1832. He popped up again in episode 19, being name-checked in particular amongst all the problems Tucson was having with the Apache in the early 1840s. In episode 21, Kearney's expedition across Arizona during the Mexican-American War is said to have traded mules with him. In episode 23, we found him telling some troublesome Texans about how he actually loved Americans, distinguishing them from the Mexicans or the Cristianos Malditos. And finally, he was again in our narrative in episode 26, when he met with U.S. Boundary Commissioner John Russell Bartlett, to make sure that those under him were properly paid after Bartlett had liberated two Mexican boys that the Apaches considered their property. You might also remember him as the Apache leader who made the veiled threat about how, so far, the Americans had been able to come and go as they pleased without being disturbed by his people. But who exactly was Mangas Coloradas? 
He had been born into the Bidonkahi band, possibly as far back as 1790, so his formative years were spent under Spanish rule during the Peace by Purchase era. His father was possibly a respected Bidonkahi leader, and many sources say that his mother may have actually been a Mexican captive. One source gives his Apache name as Kandazis Telishishan. This is the same source, I should add, that has the pronunciation for Chiricahua bands, but inexplicably decided to leave me on my own to pronounce that. His band's traditional home range was in southwestern New Mexico, so he would have grown up around the Mogollon Mountains. The Mexicans knew him originally as Fuerte, or El Fuerte, meaning the strong, a reference to his powerful figure. He stood well above six feet, State historian Thomas Sheridan puts him around 6'4 with a powerful build and a large head, which made him a giant among not only the Apaches, but many of the Mexicans and Americans he would encounter. I will note that there is some minor disagreement about whether Mangas Coldorados was actually Fuerte, or if Fuerte was another similar Apache leader. Most of my sources say they are the same, so I will go with that. Remember that his people were matriarchal, so with his first marriage, he and his children became part of the Chiheni band. We find him rising to prominence as a leader in that band, and by 1814 was settling with more than 150 of his people near Janos in exchange for rations. But what's happening right then? That's right. Mexico is several years into its attempt to break away from Spain. So, in the 1820s, when those rations are now gone because Mexico can't afford them anymore, Colorados and those he'd led began raiding, mostly in Sonora and Chihuahua. After the Johnson Affair in 1837, Colorados really rises to the top, both among his people and in the Mexican consciousness, for the retaliation he initiated. Carrying out numerous raids and attacks, it is said that he left scores of Mexicans dead out of revenge for the Mexicans that had hired Johnson, even if Johnson himself was a white eyes, the Apache name for Americans due to the perceived paleness of their eyes. It's after these attacks that we start seeing him referred to as Mangas Coloradas. The name itself means red sleeves, and either came from a particular red shirt he used to wear, or, also extremely plausible considering all the revenge he was exacting, because the sleeves of his shirt had become stained with the gore of his Mexican victims. Revenge would become an old hat for him, as he was one of the many predominant Chiricahuan leaders from across all the bands to join in in planning the destruction of Galeana after James Kirker's massacre of 130 Apache men, women, and children. And it was shortly thereafter that Mangus Colorado started dealing with the new big boy on the block, the Americans. In 1846, he was introduced to General Stephen W. Kearney through legendary scout and mountain man Kit Carson. It's here that we first see him pledging his undying love for the Americans and offering to lead his people to help clear out Mexico if the U.S. ever wanted to, you know, get together sometime and invade. Mangus Colderas would spend the next decade or so reaffirming his love for the Americans and helping either to stop raids on them 
or making restitution for raids that might have been conducted individually. Of course, none of this stopped him from personally leading raids into Mexico, or those under him from making the occasional raid on particularly plump American caravans. The one thing the Americans noticed about him, aside from his large stature, is that he commanded respect among many disparate groups. Through his raiding skill, leadership ability, and diplomacy, he came to have quasi-control over the Chicheni and Bidonkahi bands. He also set up powerful family alliances, marrying three daughters of his Mexican wife, Carmen, to leaders among the Navajo, Mescalero Apache, and Western Apache. Sheridan wrote that in this way, he became almost like a European monarch, weaving a web of marital alliances that stretched from northern Arizona into Chihuahua. And one of those alliances was marrying Dos Tese, the daughter of one of his Apache wives, to a Chaconan warrior on the rise named Cochise. Even if you know extremely little about Arizona history, I'm going to bet you've run across the name Cochise. It helps that a county in southeastern Arizona is named after him, which I've been told is the only county in the United States named after a Native American individual. Cochise is a pretty big deal, and though I have hinted at his coming, it's time now to finally invite him to the table. We know precious little about the early life of Cochise, who would grow up to be a seminal leader among the Chiricahua, eventually commanding the loyalty of not only the various clans within his own band, but among the various bands themselves. He had been born into the Chaconan band, but exactly when is a matter of debate. We are mainly reliant on various estimates of his age by those who knew him or had met him. These often wildly different estimates put his birth somewhere between 1800 and 1830, though it's most likely that he was born sometime in the 1810s. After he became such a predominant figure to both the Americans and Apache, legends began popping up that he was the descendant of a long line of leaders, though the veracity of this is questionable. One Apache source says that Cochise was related to Juan José Compa, the intelligent, literate Apache leader killed in the Johnson Affair. Though, if this is true, it has to be through marriage, as Compa was not a member of Cochise's band. His father appears to have been a leading figure among the Chaconans, and Cochise himself is reported to have said his grandfather was the leader of all the Apache, by which he most likely meant the Chiricahua Apache. Though Cochise biographer Edwin R. Sweeney says this most likely is a mistranslation, and he had actually meant his father, not grandfather. Some Americans who were on good terms with Cochise reported years later that his father had been massacred by Mexicans in an act of treachery when they had lured the Apache in, fed them, got them drunk, and killed them. These details are so much like Kirker's massacre at Galeana that some historians say it's possible that his father was one of those killed there, though none of this can be verified. As the son of a prominent leader, Cochise would have been expected to become one too. Now, the Apache did not have a concept of inherited leadership, and any position had to be earned. But a chief's son was expected to have the best training and opportunity to prove themselves and thus become a leader in their own right. 
No photograph or illustration of Cochise is known to exist, but from the various Americans who met him, we learned that he was roughly 5 feet 10 inches tall and weighed maybe 175 to 180 pounds. He is alternatively described as being slightly slender or being powerfully or well-built, quote, not unlike our conception of a Roman soldier, in the words of one writer. He is said to have had jet black hair, a high forehead, a Roman nose, and prominent cheekbones. In the way of temperament, we see a great dichotomy in how he is described. Some report that he had a pleasant countenance, while others say he was grave, stern, and never smiled. Everyone who dealt with him said he placed great emphasis on the truth, remarking to the Americans that he treated with that he, quote, did not speak with a split tongue, end quote. However, at the same time, some of those who will be involved in our story next week counted him as unpredictable, untrustworthy, and dangerous. He was also known to have a fearsome temper, which would sometimes result in him beating his wives and his sister. Cochise was also capable of heinous acts of torture and murder, which admittedly does not make him that much different than many of the people we are dealing with. As author Terry Mort points out in his book about the Bascom Affair, many of the more glowing descriptions of Cochise as a sage leader and diplomat come from the mid-1870s, after a decade of war had tempered him and his worldview. But before then, in his prime as a warrior, Cochise could be a fearsome and wily adversary. At the same time, he achieved nearly unprecedented influence over all the Chiricahua bands, and those he led were devoted to him. But now I'm getting ahead of myself. We first find who we think is Cochise in the record at Hanos, where, as I mentioned in episode 17, he may be the same person listed as some variant of Cheese. We don't know exactly what the name means, or why it went from Cheese to Cochise, but Mort writes that the name possibly connotes someone having the qualities of an oak tree. And yes, Cochise is in the background for all the troubles that plagued Mexico following independence. He's part of the regular raids from Chihuahua into Sonora, and from Arizona into Mexico, and the revenge-filled killings in the wake of the Johnson Affair and Kirker Massacre. But where he really starts rising to prominence is in the 1850s, as his band continues to wage war against Mexicans, those perennial enemy of his people. It's important to note that he is a leader on the rise, but at this point he is not Cochise the Great and Terrible, Rather, he's just the influential head of a local group, and he's still just one of several leaders among the Chaconans. Now, during the 1850s, the Chiricahua Apache were having on-and-off wars with the Mexican state of Chihuahua, sometimes suing for peace and the right to live near Janos as they had done in the past, sometimes raiding and killing at the drop of a hat. Cochise and those with him were among those that vacillated between these two positions. Part of the reason for this vacillation is that the Americans were now in firm control of New Mexico, and they were sending out heavily armed campaigns to stop raiding in their territory, which was putting the squeeze on the Apache. So settling down in Mexico, at times, seemed like a good idea. Sweeney's biography of Cochise goes into great detail about the various peace attempts between Chihuahua and the Apache, 
But it boils down to the fact that no side trusted the other, so it was an endless round of talks, disappointment, and raiding. While this back-and-forth will-they-won't-they was happening, Cochise and his band would often return to their traditional home in the Chiricahua Mountains in southern Arizona. Particularly, Cochise and his group would return again and again near what we know today as Apache Pass, which we briefly talked about in episode 28. That's that stretch of mountain in the Chiricahua Mountains just south of Dos Cabezas Peak. But because it had a steady water supply, Apache Pass was also eyed as a great spot for the mail line and other American wagons heading west, meaning Cochise and the White Eyes were on a collision course. There had already been some raiding and run-ins in the area. Pioneer William, or Bill Kirkland, who we last saw in episode 28 hoisting the American flag over Tucson as the Mexican troops departed, reported later in life to having been accosted by Cochise and his men in October 1858 in the Santa Rita Mountains just south of Tucson. According to his story, Cochise made Kirkland prepare him food before deciding to let him go. But the first real recorded American interaction with Cochise happened in December 1858, which was the intro into today's episode, when he met with Dr. Michael Steck who had been the Indian agent for the New Mexico Territory since 1852. This was a fairly productive meeting because, in Mort's words, quote, Steck was considered an exception to the general rule of ineptitude and corruption among the Indian agents, end quote. Though he proved to not entirely understand Cochise or the natives he dealt with, Steck at least tried to learn their language and be honest with them. And in this first meeting... He brought gifts, gifts, and more gifts. A month later, so January 1859, Steck came back with Captain Richard S. Yule, the head of Fort Buchanan, to retrieve some recently stolen horses from the area of Sunoida. Not only did Cochise return the horses, but the three came to an understanding that his band was welcome to live at Apache Pass, provided that he did not bother the Butterfield mail line at all. There was also a nod-wink understanding that Cochise and his band could go down to Mexico and do whatever they wanted. That wasn't any of the U.S. Army's concern. Steck would make repeated trips to visit Cochise and the tribe to distribute what gifts and rations he could, though this would become a point of contention as we'll get to in just a second. At the same time, Cochise and his band had a, let's call it, tense relationship with the Apache Pass station for the Butterfield Mail. The first station manager for Apache Pass had to be transferred because Cochise is said to have sworn revenge on him after this manager had whipped a Choconan man for stealing some livestock from Tubac. The next manager, James H. Tevis, did not have a high opinion of Cochise at all. I will throw in here just for interest's sake that Tevis became the station manager after having participated in William Walker's filibustering expedition to Nicaragua. But in his opinion, Tevis had several reasons not to like Cochise or his followers. For example, he claimed that when planning a particular raid against Fronteras in Mexico, the Apaches were constantly intoxicated with Tiswin, a weak beer made from corn. In this state, Cochise and his men often antagonized the station, 
under the not-too-off-the-mark point that it was on Apache land, after all, and he deserved compensation. They wouldn't attack, but would do things such as piling rocks along the road to impede oncoming wagons. You know, almost drunken frat guy kind of stuff. Tevis recorded, quote, When any government train is here, they are as gentle as lambs, but as soon as the train leaves, the devil seems to let loose among them, end quote. The station manager is also one of the sources who describes Cochise as deceptive. He wrote, quote, At first appearance, a man would think he was inclined to be peaceable to Americans, but he is far from it. For eight months I have watched and have come to the conclusion that he is the biggest liar in the territory and would kill an American for any trifle, provided he thought it would not be found out. End quote. Hardly a glowing recommendation. This is contrasted with the early state histories, which are always eager to point out what a great guy Cochise was. For example, Thomas Farish, writing in 1915, said that Cochise, quote, had been uniformly friendly to the whites up to about the year 1859, end quote. He also passes along a tidbit that Cochise had actually been contracted to supply hay and wood to the Apache Pass station. However, Sweeney says that this tidbit started creeping up in histories in the late 19th century, but there is no evidence of such a contract. It's entirely possible, he said, that the women of Cochise's band were occasionally coming into the camp to trade such things, which the station would have needed, but it is not mentioned by any of the contemporary sources, including Tevis, who was the station manager. Sweeney, again citing a lack of concrete sources, also dismisses a story that Cochise actually killed four Apaches from an unaffiliated band who dared to attack the station after his explicit orders not to. However, Sweeney does say that Cochise could be friendly, at least on the surface. He did see the value of a peace treaty with the Americans and the gifts and rations this could provide. He also saw that his treaties with the Americans would still leave his band free to raid down in Mexico and do as they pleased. It would be much like in the 1830s and 1840s when Apaches would raid into Sonora from Chihuahua and no one would touch them once they crossed the magical artificial boundary these non-Apaches were so fond of. Cochise went so far as to instruct his men to not raid the mail line for this reason. If they left the mail alone, then the white eyes would leave them alone when they raided into Mexico. Additionally, and a bit cynically, Sweeney says Cochise must have realized that the U.S. Indian agent overseeing his people was a couple hundred miles away, so if they did it infrequently enough, and with a light enough hand, the U.S. might overlook the occasional raid in Arizona. Finally, even if he didn't always respect the men, Cochise had to respect the firepower that U.S. troops could muster. So, to foster good relations, on more than one occasion Cochise even returned stolen livestock, as we just saw. Another example... After returning from a raid on Mexico in the summer of 1859, Cochise learned of a group of Chaconans that had stolen somewhere in the neighborhood of 80-plus horses from the Sonora Exploring and Mining Company near Patagonia. Some of Cochise's people were part of this raid, and when they returned with their share of the loot, he demanded they return it. One contemporary source who was living among the Chaconans at the time recorded that he became incensed when some refused, and that he may have even killed a man for not obeying this order. 
However, by mid-1859, Cochise, according to Sweeney, had realized that peace with the Americans was tenuous. Most of it was simply the clash of two vastly different value systems. The Apache had a certain way of life, which the Americans did not understand, did not value, and did not want to keep happening. By late November 1859, reports of raids north of the Mexican border were on the rise, and the Chaconans, especially those under Cochise, were the prime suspects. And in late 1859 and early 1860, the Apache had continual run-ins while raiding in Arizona. Warriors were killed during separate raids in Sonora, Patagonia, and between San Simon and Apache Pass, which, according to Tevis at least, put Cochise in a very bad mood. In mid-May 1860, Chaconan raiders hit Tubac, running off the entire herd of animals belonging to the Santa Rita Mining Company. This called for a response from Fort Buchanan, and Captain Ewell marched out to treat with the Apache. He met with a leader, who was most likely Cochise, who denied having any involvement in the theft. Though he did return a few animals and promised to have more and other compensation if Ewell returned in June. However, when Ewell did just that, all the Apaches could offer is five mules, which Ewell said were not in the best of condition, and these animals were actually refused by the agents of the company they had been stolen from. You would actually spend more than a week searching the area of Apache Pass, just in case the Apache were hiding the livestock somewhere. The whole incident left a bad taste in everyone's mouth, with many positive that Cochise's band was behind any and all raiding activity in the area. Ewell's also criticized a fair bit for not holding Cochise's feet to the fire more and continuing to treat with the Apache instead of coming in with overwhelming force. After all, the settlers in Arizona didn't want to make peace with the Apache. They wanted them gone, and the raiding to stop. Things were not helped any bit by the arrival of rations in March 1860, which Cochise found paltry at best, and the news that more would not arrive until November, a gap of eight months that the Apaches found unacceptable. Cochise's anger about the rations, which were always less than expected and only came every few months instead of weekly like down in Mexico, had been festering for some time. Plus, the capable and honest Steck will also leave the scene as Indian agent in 1860. You might remember from episode 32 that Sylvester Mowry was unable to continue as Arizona's congressional delegate that year. Steck is actually the guy who took his place. It's during this time, too, that Tevis started reporting an uptick in threats against the mail station. In early January 1860, a friendly Apache passed along that the Chaconans were again thinking of clearing out the entire station. Tevis even reports that Cochise had ordered the execution of any American that approached Apache Springs, the station's source of water, but since they still managed to get water somehow, and Tevis has a blinding bias when it comes to Cochise, we might take that last part with a grain of salt. In June 1860, so soon after Yule's visit, a large group of Apache, painted and armed, appeared at the station to again make threats against it. So what we have here is a huge growing web of tension as relations, which were never that good to begin with, are breaking down. For his part, Cochise found the American promises lackluster. 
Plus, they had set up a mail station practically in his backyard, which he seems to have always been ambivalent toward. And we can't forget that he is a warrior, and the leader of a warrior culture where raiding is a way of life. It almost seems inevitable that his band would prey upon some of the settlers north of the Mexican border. For the Americans, Cochise was leader of a band of dishonest and increasingly brazen thieves who could not be entirely trusted. Both sides were partially right, and both had cause to distrust the other. And it's this underlying tension that will truly cause the upcoming Bascom affair to blow up as big as it did. So join me next week when we talk about the small event that was the spark that ignited the giant barrel of gunpowder that was Cochise. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.